Well, good morning. For those of you that are here or maybe watching online that don't know me, uh, my name is Ben. I'm the associate pastor here, and I have the privilege to share part three of this series called This Is My Story. Um, and before we get started into the life of Paul and the transition from, Paul, from Saul to Paul, I first was trying to figure out what I could do if there was a word or a phrase or an image that could kind of unite us all on the same page. Because I'm the new guy, right? I'm the new person in town, so how can I connect in a way that all of us can be of the same mind, of the same emotional state, have the same feeling towards what we're gonna talk about this morning? And it was hard, kind of thought about it for a while, and get your tissues ready, because it's gonna have an emotional response. But this is the only image that I could come up with that we all could have the same reaction to. I, I didn't say tears of joy or tears of sadness. I think they're more like rage-filled tears, right? We all love when we're driving down the road and we see that, right? Now, for me, this, uh, this picture has more significance to me, and you could ask my wife, Hillary. So I'm what I would consider, and I'm, I'm comfortable enough with who I am now to admit this. I am what I would consider directionally disadvantaged. That's the fancy way of putting, I get lost a lot. So when I'm living in a new city and in a new state, that becomes a problem. I make wrong turns, I miss intersections, I forget what route I'm taking and what destination I'm going to. I, I struggle a little bit in that area. So, one, if you see a blue Honda Pilot driving around in circles somewhere in your neighborhood, wave me down and kind of help me get back on the right direction on the right path. But two, something like this, I like to let the GPS do my driving for me, so if this shows up and I don't hear the recalculating, I'm in trouble, right? I do not know where I'm going. And it's already happened a few times. So it's, it's not a good time. So tears of sadness and anger definitely relate to me. But when we look at this image, the whole idea of a detour, that sign in and of itself should not cause us anger, right? It's not designed to cause us rage or pain or discomfort. But what it actually is, is it's a sign to protect us, right? It's, it's a way for the people that know that there's something beyond this that's dangerous to tell us there is a safer route to your destination. So that is not inherently what causes the anger. What causes the anger is probably that we live our lives with seconds to spare, right? And we, we can't afford to waste time on that detour, but that's not the sign's fault. The sign is meant to protect us, right? So the key to success when it comes to an invitation like this, because this is an invitation, a detour sign is an invitation to safety, right? So for a physical destination, for that invitation, those road detours, we actually have to respond to them the same way that we would spiritual detours, right? Soul detours, ways for our lives to take a different path, a different direction. But this sign and the signs that were given from Jesus that we're going to learn about with Paul and his story, it causes a response. It actually demands a response, right? We have to respond. Sure, we could, I suppose, just drive right through that and just keep bang, 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 hitting all those detour signs. But those signs are designed, and the Word of God and the life of Christ infiltrating our lives is designed for us to reach our destination safely. But it takes a response, right? 
So we're in part three of our message, This Is My Story. And hopefully you've been able to follow along online or in person how things have gone. So we've gone from going through the Bible in 30-ish, 45-ish minutes. And then last week we talked about the before of our story, right? The goal of this series is up on the screen. There are multiple goals that we have. The first one is that in 45 seconds or less, you can tell someone your story. You will have identified five people to tell your story to. You can summarize your story in one word, and that by the end you have made Jesus the center of your story. So that is the goal of this entire series. Last week we specifically talked about before, the before part of our story, before Christ came into our lives. We began a study on the life of Paul which we learned that before he was Paul, Saint Paul, he actually was Saul of Tarsus, a religious terrorist and an enemy of Christ in his church. We came to an understanding that every one of us has a before. I hope this last week was a challenge. I hope that you did fill out those cards and write out the before section of your story because as you see as we complete this series, that is really a unique tool to be able to identify where Christ has entered our story. I've had the opportunity to actually share some conversations with some of you over the last couple weeks, and we've been able to share our stories to each other of where we've been, where we're going, some of our struggles in the midst of all of this. So it's been really encouraging to have those conversations. We've also had a couple people also post their before stories. So here's a couple more befores. We have the first one, my name is Mindy. Before I became a follower of Jesus Christ, my life was in a state of disarray. My days were full of turmoil and despair, living on pins and needles, battling constant anxiety. Between a toxic marriage and a traumatic family event, I felt like I didn't matter and would never be good enough for anyone to stick around. I felt empty and abandoned. And then you have Brittany. My name is Brittany. Before I became a follower of Jesus Christ, my life was a constant chase of distractions, ultimately leading to discontentment. For example, I dedicated all my time to sports, school, relationships, etc. I was living for the instant gratification. I felt like I was missing something. I felt empty. I felt like I needed a major shift of my priorities and a new perspective on what life was really about. And maybe some of you can relate, can identify yourselves in those stories that were shared. But today, we're going to come back to the life of Saul, and we're going to start to talk about then, going from before to then. It comes in the form of an invitation to change course that gets presented every day to all kinds of people all across the map. You could be a prisoner, you could be a prison guard, you could be a politician, you could be a politician on the other side, you could be rich, you could be poor, you could be religious, you could be atheist. Those invitations that Jesus presents to go from before to then apply to all of us. They're given to all of us. Now, last week we saw Saul's life. We saw what Saul had been, what he had become. Pretty bad guy, right? If we were going to make a list of like pre-qualifications to be a Christian, I don't really recommend we do that. We tend to get in trouble when we do stuff like that and make lists. But if we were, probably on the top of the list of things to make sure to be a Christian is to not imprison and kill Christians, right? That would probably be top on the list of what you don't want to do if you want to be a Christian, right? But... When you look at the life of Saul, like we saw last week, that's exactly what he was doing. That was the path that he was on when Jesus slammed the door, when Jesus put that detour sign in front of him. 
Well, let's look at the summary of that story in Acts 22, three through five. It gives us a solid picture of where Saul is at the point of this story. It says this, I am a Jew born in Tarsus in Sicilia, but brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God as all of you are this day. I persecuted this way to death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women, as the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear me witness. From them I received letters to the brothers, and I journeyed toward Damascus to take those also who were there and bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. So, Saul summarized where he was in that story. And we're going to pick it up into chapter 9, which is where that conversion story happens. But at this point, we want to set the stage because Saul is just out of control, right? This religious sect, this way of Jesus, completely dismantles all that Saul had believed in, all that Saul had patterned his life after. His influence, his position, his power, everything that was about Saul was the complete opposite of what this message of Jesus was. So his heritage was tied into his life, his traditions, his family, his faith. Everything was wrapped up in life before Jesus. I think we can relate to Saul in this way. Probably not to the extent of being a religious terrorist and imprisoning Christians, but I think we can relate to our lives sometimes going so far in a direction that we're in control of that when we think about letting go, when we think about resurrecting like we sing about, it, it becomes a challenge, right? Because it's, I've gone so far in this direction, right? I've put so much stake in this life, and if Jesus is trying to send me on a different direction, I have too much to lose. Or maybe we even, some of us might even feel like, I've just gone too far. I've gone too far in the wrong direction. I'm too far lost to find my way back to Jesus. And I'm sure Saul, at that point in his life where Jesus met him, that we're going to read about later, I'm sure he found himself in that place. He is too far gone. He's too far gone. Too much is established. That just goes counter to the gospel, counter to Jesus. Let's pick it up at chapter 9 of Acts, verse 1 and 2. This describes the scene. Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found anyone belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. So Damascus, for those of you that need to kind of picture this in their head, Damascus was this 100-mile pathway to Jerusalem. And Saul had reports that there were Jews that were being converted into Christianity, that were putting their faith in Jesus. So his plan was to take all of his religious training and to go and infiltrate that group of people, to meet them on that road, and to then try them for blasphemy. So Paul is Saul, the prosecutor, at this point. He's coming down on Christians. He's preventing them from following the ways of Jesus. And then it happened. The invitation. The invitation to change course. Now, Saul's invitation might be more jarring and honestly more terrifying than some of our interactions, some of our invitations that Jesus gives us because it was just the door was slammed, right? There was no forewarning. There was nothing. It was the exact moment that Jesus put the brakes on Saul. But it was in that moment 
that Saul went from before to then. Let's pick it back up at verse 3. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus. Suddenly, a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you'll be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. That doesn't sound like an invitation, right? But make no mistake, that was an invitation. That was God, through Jesus, presenting an invitation for Saul to change his story. That same, that same invitation takes place for all of us, Christian or non-Christian. We have that daily invitation from Jesus to follow his ways and not our own. Life takes a turn. We sometimes find ourselves facing circumstances or facing a change in our life where we have to make a decision that might change the course of our lives for the rest of our life. Or perhaps a, a circumstance that's out of our control, a health issue, a job issue, a family issue. Something happens that just seems to slam the door on all of our plans. That's what Saul faced when he met Jesus. So it might not look like blindness, it might not look like Jesus knocking us to the ground physically, but it are those, it's those, those moments in our life where we recognize that we're at a fork, we're at a crossroads. And that's when we have a decision to make. Saul's before, as we talked about last week, were three decades of just being out of control. But at the same time, it was three decades of control because Saul was one of the great religious leaders in Judaism. Saul was basically on his way to being in the hall of fame of Jewish religious traditions, right? He lived precisely within the narrative that he had created, that he had been born into. So Saul was on the right path as far as Saul was concerned. It was when God stopped him, when God put the brakes on and completely hijacked his life. That's when you see Saul of Tarsus start to become Paul, the great missionary of Scripture. It hit him so hard that he physically fell on the ground and was blinded, like we had said. But there's something that is in the conversation that takes place between Jesus and Saul that I think we need to take some time to look at. It's first how Jesus references Saul. He said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And that tells us, that tells me that Jesus knew exactly who Saul was. And it went far beyond a name, far beyond recognizing who he was by his appearance. It was he knew Saul's faults. He knew Saul's ways. He knew that Saul was an enemy of Christ. He knew everything, all of the baggage about Saul, unless he but yet he referenced him by name and said, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Saul, in that moment of confusion, asks, who are you? So Saul literally had no reason to believe it was Jesus, but it was a statement of respect. The invitation came in the form of a declaration. He said, Jesus, he said I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. The living Jesus that you had spent your whole life hating 
is giving you an invitation, is giving you a choice. Accepting that invitation into a relationship with his Savior is what brought Saul out of spiritual blindness, made him physically blind because of the experience. But what happened was Saul's eyes were opened to the love and forgiveness of Jesus. And he began to see Jesus for who he was, see God for who he was. Saul became Paul. And we'll take a look at that next week. Pastor Rich will kind of carry us through into the life of Paul after this conversion. But let's stick with this story of the conversion of Saul. And there's a couple things that I feel appropriate for us to unpack a little bit. And the first one is how we see this invitation for our own lives. I know it's been said by me and I know it's been said to me dozens of times, if not hundreds of times, the phrase, inviting Jesus into my heart. We've sang songs about it. And I'm not saying that that phrase is inherently wrong, but let's think about us inviting Jesus into our life, but then when we see the life of Saul and how this invitation takes place, is that really encompassing what's happening here? Are we really inviting Jesus into our hearts? Because if we're, if we're inviting Jesus, that gives us the position of power, right, and of control. We're inviting Jesus. So then, what does that look like? How do we invite someone into our lives to change our lives? Let's just think about it as a house. We're, we're inviting our neighbor over to our house, and our neighbor is Jesus. So think of it this way. We're, we're going to throw that invite out, but we don't just let Jesus in, right? We don't just let people into our house and into our lives, right? That doesn't happen right away. No, what we do first is we, we go to the sink and we take all of the dirty dishes and then we put them back in the dishwasher, right? We don't want Jesus to see that. And then we go over here into our bedrooms and we take all the laundry out from under the bed and on the bed and all around the bed. We get that into the closet. We don't want Jesus to see all our dirty laundry. And then we look around at the walls and go, all right, am I, am I acceptable to Jesus? Is he going to like you? Oh, I know what I'll do. So then I'll, I'll take all the fancy verses made out of like barn wood from Hobby Lobby and I'll start putting those in every room. So every time Jesus goes into a room, he sees his words and he's like, all right, yeah, I, I'm comfortable here, right? That, that's what inviting Jesus into my heart starts to look like when we see how it actually transpires in Scripture, right? Because we, would, we wouldn't want to invite Jesus into our heart before we know Jesus and before we've been surrendered and transformed by Jesus because we don't want Jesus to see that mess, right? Think of that house as, as, as in our heart. We want to invite Jesus in and then just hope and hope and pray that he finds us acceptable and that he's naive enough to stay. But that's not what happened here. That's not what happened with Saul. Jesus saw all of the mess in Saul's life, and he invited Saul out of it. So when we look at it, when we think about our relationship with Jesus, we have to have that consideration that Jesus is inviting us out of our mess. We don't have to carry the weight of that guilt and that shame that comes with our mess. We just leave that mess and go to Jesus and allow him to transform our lives and take us out of our destination that we have control over the destination that he has for us. Does that make sense? We're not begging for an invitation. Jesus just continually invites us with his grace, with his love. The second thing 
to maybe address here, and I think it's important. It seems like every conversation I have revolves around this issue when it comes to relationships, whether it be relationships with Jesus or whether it's relationships with spouses, family, friends, coworkers, neighbors, is understanding how Jesus invited Saul. Because if we take that verse in isolation, it looks kind of like Jesus just finally nailed Paul to the ground, right? It makes Saul and Jesus look like they're, like they're enemies, just throwing offenses back and forth at each other. And then finally Jesus grinded Saul down enough to force him to be Paul and to drag him along with him. If we think that's the invitation from Jesus, that's how we treat our relationships, right? If I'm right and you're wrong, I'm going to drag you. I'm going to beat you down until you find my way, my side. When we look at Jesus that way and when we look at forgiveness that way, it bleeds into all of our relationships. It even bleeds into our relationship with ourselves because if I don't understand how Jesus met Paul when he was Saul, I have to forever live in that fog, that fog of guilt, that fog of shame because I don't know if Jesus truly loves me or if he's just trying to beat me down to follow his way. But no, Jesus leads with what? He leads with forgiveness. When you have those detour signs that we looked at that picture earlier, when you're coming to that complete stop, the only way you're going to be able to follow that detour, that course correction, is if there's space. Space for you to leave where you're at and go where you need to go. What that space is, I think biblically what that space is, is forgiveness and repentance. Our relationships, think of any relationship that has any kind of toxic environment, toxic atmosphere. If there's not forgiveness from the one who's been offended, and if there's not repentance from the offender, admitting that they're wrong and then turning away from their wrongdoing and not doing it again, if there's not that space, you're just going to forever hit that detour. You're just going to forever hit that wall and not be able to have reconciliation, restoration, So Jesus doesn't pull Paul. Jesus doesn't drag us kicking and screaming. Jesus offers us forgiveness. He offers us space to recognize and repent from our ways and then leads us with that loving grace. And that grace is for all of us. That grace is for us even before we know Jesus. That grace has continued to be offered. Jesus continues to flash those lights, flash those signs, turn around, turn around, turn around. It's up to us to follow each and every one of those turnaround points. So we need to look at the love of Jesus and the forgiveness of Jesus and we need to accept that for what it is because then that fog of shame and guilt is lifted. We can see each other the way Jesus sees us. We can see ourselves the way Jesus sees us. Back to Paul. Long after this scene played out, Paul found himself in a position, hopefully that we all will find ourselves in soon, to be able to share his story, to share his before, then, and now story. It was in front of King Agrippa. It's in Acts 26, verse 14. This time, Paul finds himself as the defendant instead of the prosecutor. And he says this, And when we had fallen to the ground, sharing his testimony of the moment he met Jesus, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. So what in the world is a goad? If you were to ask me and I didn't know, 
I would have assumed Kicking Against the Goads was like a cool 90s grunge band, like Rage Against the Machine, right? Kicking Against the Goads, you know? Goad, goading oxen. And that might just be because I like 90s grudge rock, and I'm not going to apologize for that. But kicking against the goads is an expression. A goad was like a sharpened stick, and it would go into the neck of oxen. So that way, when the oxen would try to pull away from their task or pull away from the direction that they needed to go, it would just further drive into their neck, causing pain, causing them to course correct. That's what a goad is. The harder they would resist, the more pain they would endure. So the modern day equivalent, I suppose, would be spurs on your boots for your horse to course correct your horses. I don't own oxen or horses, so that's the best I got. From these words from Paul, though, it seems to reveal that God had continually been working on Saul, inviting him over and over and over again. Saul, or Paul now, revealed that he was kicking against Jesus throughout his time. We only get a small sample size of what God was doing in those invitations. We saw the the big invitation at the road of Damascus, but we don't know how many times the grace and the love of Jesus had been shared to Saul and he had rejected it. But what do we know about God's grace? It's sufficient. It's prevenient. It always goes before. Jesus had patience with Saul of Tarsus, the religious terrorist. I think he can be patient with us. I think so. We cannot give in to the temptation to to adore or idolize people like Paul. It's easy to see St. Paul, statues everywhere, well-known missionary. He wrote a giant chunk of the New Testament. We see Paul and then we see our lives and we see our house and we go... I can never be Paul. I I can't see that transformation from my mess to be Paul. That must have been a miracle that I just don't have access to. But that's not true, right? That's not what Scripture tells us. The invitation from Jesus is that we continually accept those invitations. It's not just a one invitation and then boom, you go from a terrorist to a church planter. You go from somebody who's just down in the dumps, just has all of their, their relationships in shambles and then all of a sudden you're perfect. That's not how it works, right? It's a continual obedience. That's why it's called a walk with Jesus, right? We're walking with Jesus. We're walking in step with the Holy Spirit. We did a series about the Holy Spirit and the fruit of the Spirit. We have to walk daily in step with Jesus. Responding to those moments where he gives us the forgiveness for us to repent and course correct. I mean, even speaking for myself, it's not like I was at an altar as like an eighth grade boy praying and asking Jesus into my heart and then all of a sudden, bam, I'm right here this morning preaching in front of you, right? It took, it took decisions, it took steps. And that's not trying to put me anywhere on any kind of pedestal or platform, but it's just the reality that life transformation happens in steps. And it happens differently for each and every one of us. So we can't, we can't fall back into that pattern that the world puts us in where we feel guilty, we feel shame, we feel like we're imperfect. We are imperfect. I'm imperfect. Jesus is the only one that's perfect, and his grace is perfect, and it meets me right, right where I'm at. It meets all of us right where we're at. So let's talk about that, kicking against the goads. Do we see areas in our lives where Jesus is trying to get us in the right direction? 
but yet we just keep pushing against those goads. We just keep hanging on to something in our identity and don't want to just let it go so we can properly repent, turn around, change our ways. I think that the story of Paul and his conversion from Saul to Paul gives us two universal goads that apply. The first one is the goad of the person of Jesus. There is actually a real possibility that Saul and Paul, or not Saul and Paul, Saul and Jesus had interactions, that they knew each other. At the very least, they were the same age, so they had to have probably heard stories about one another, right? So Saul knew who this Jesus was, loving adulterous women, loving children, providing miracles for children of Roman soldiers, healing lepers, eating in the house of sinners and tax collectors. Saul knew who Jesus was. It had to, the question had to have crossed Saul's mind, why in the world would Jesus do this? Why in the world would somebody love other people at no benefit of their own? The more that Jesus loved, the more he was persecuted. The more Jesus loved, the more he was being chased after and trying to be snuffed by people like Saul. But yet he kept going. That love had to have made an impact on Saul's life. He might have not known it in those moments. Those were the goads. Every time Jesus loved the unlovable, every time Jesus showed grace and mercy to the unlovable, that had to have pushed at people like Saul. Have you, under, have you ever wondered if Jesus was here in this room or in this region, where would he be? Scripture tells us he would be loving those that are unloved. Scripture tells us he would be in the places with the outcasts, embracing the sinners, doing his best to try to find the people that are way over here in Saul territory in the before so he can lead them to the then and the now. That's where Jesus would be, so where are we supposed to be, right? Loving the sinners, loving the unlovable, recognizing our need for that love. You see, Jesus in action is radical. It's controversial. When you start to see him for who he is and what he does, you can't shake it. That's why when I talk to people, I always say, if you want to hear the story of Scripture, start in the Gospels. I know in a book you like to start at the beginning and go to the end, but start in the gospel. Start in the story of Jesus because that is God's love. That is who God is. When you see the story of Jesus, you can put all of your politics and all of your baggage and all of your hurts aside and just say, this is what I want. This is the relationship that I want. This is the relationship that I want so that way all of my other relationships can change. Philippians 2, 5 through 8, Paul describes this selfless love. Have this in mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the forms of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Paul also says in Romans 5, 8, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's the goad. While we were still sinners, while I was still a sinner, Christ died for me. 
He knew the words that Jesus spoke from the cross. Saul knew the words of forgiveness and love. He knew of the beatings. He knew of the crucifixion. And that in that moment of cruelty, Jesus gave himself in love. That was only amplified in Saul's life by the next goad, the goad of the life of others. Saul, way back before he was Saul the bad guy, Saul the terrorist, Saul the one that we see in Acts, he actually had a front row seat watching Stephen be martyred. As a young religious leader, as, as somebody aspiring to be a Jewish leader, he watched Stephen give his life. Not have his life taken. Stephen gave his life. He heard the words from Stephen. He heard the words of forgiveness as flesh was being torn on his body. How do you recover from seeing love and forgiveness like that? We're not meant to recover. We're meant to see that forgiveness and allow it to, to melt our heart and hearts so that we, we live out that forgiveness, right? We embrace and accept that forgiveness. Scripture tells us that in that moment, Stephen had the face of an angel. Now, I know there's debates on what an angel looks like. I'm sure he didn't have long, blonde, flowing hair or a million eyeballs all over his body. But the point is, is that in that moment, Stephen reflected Christ, which was another goad in Saul. Have you ever witnessed that? Have you ever witnessed somebody's love and forgiveness and grace in the midst of whatever difficult circumstances they face make such an impact on you? How can somebody glorify God when they're going through that? How can somebody still love others after they've gone through that, allowed somebody to do that to them? We hear of those stories all the time. Those are little moments where Jesus is trying to pull us closer to him, trying to lead us away from our selfishness, away from our shame, and into his love. We see that in some of our stories that have been shared here at Real Life. Mindy said this with her then story, my beliefs about Jesus at that point were that Jesus was the epitome of perfection, and I was far from that. But then I started coming to Real Life and learned that Jesus loved me too and would meet me where I was at if I would just let him in. That he would not leave like so many in the past. I decided that I wanted to receive Jesus as my savior, so after several years and lots of tears, I started to make tough changes in my life and allow Jesus into my heart. And then Danny in the front row, he wrote a book. It's gonna be published next week. I'm gonna try to read this, so hang on. I have always believed in God, however, I have not always served him. Because I had a hard time loving God's people. I found it very hard to serve him. My life serving God has come to fruition by being obedient and coming to real life community church when I was very content at the church I was at. This is where it gets good right here. Through all the years I've been here, that simple act of obedience has led to growth, exponential beyond anything I could have foreseen. I would have been happy just to be at the place I was called to. I had no idea what he had in store for me and the amount of restoration that he could do for me and my family. The struggles have become strength. The flaws have become teaching points. The relationships have become lifelong. And the constant reminder that God has given is that it all comes from him. My life before is a distant memory from my life now. What I was is not who I am now. The defining characteristics of my life and ministry are now all based and come from him who brought me here. That blessing will never be lost. 
on me or anybody I talk to. That's that then story right there. That's Saul becoming Paul, recognizing the restoration that's in store if he would just see that detour and turn to Jesus. I'd like you to take a look at that card on your seat, or hopefully you have a card online. We handed him out last week. What does that then story look like for you? Here's what I know. Here's what we all know after the story of Saul, is that Saul was no match for God. So either am I, and either are you. God will relentlessly and patiently goad us until we accept him as our Savior. I really want to encourage you to join us next week when we close out this series and we talk more about who Paul was and what Paul did after this conversion. But I think I want to close out with just a a snapshot of the words of Paul that's found in Philippians. Just to kind of prep us, to prime the pump for our our now story. Because again, these are the words of Paul describing his walk with Jesus. It's not being dragged by Jesus. It's also not following his selfish ambitions, but it's him walking with Jesus. I'm going to ask if we would stand, if you could. And we're going to read Philippians 3, 10 through 14, and it says this. I want to know Christ. These are the words of Paul. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained all this or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead. And this is one of my favorite verses here. I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me, heavenward in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Father God, thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for revealing to us stories like the story of Saul. Thank you for reminding us, Lord, that there is no place we can be, no matter how far or how long we've been in the wilderness. Your grace is there. Your forgiveness is there available to us for the taking, Lord, so we can turn our lives around and come back to you. Just like the prodigal son, Lord, you're waiting there. You're waiting there for the banquet for us to come back into your loving arms. So Lord, I first ask if there's anybody listening here in this room or online that still feels like they are 100% in the before of this story, I ask, Lord, that your grace and your Holy Spirit would reveal to them that your love and your forgiveness is sufficient. If you find yourself at that place this morning where you're ready to put your faith in Jesus and let go of that guilt, let go of that shame, and start that journey of turning around and running towards your Savior, there are no magical words that can be said. But Jesus is calling you to surrender. Jesus is calling you to say, I believe. I believe that Jesus is the Son of God and I believe that Jesus came down to wash away my sins.
I want to put my faith and trust in the only foundation that will hold for all eternity. And I invite Jesus and the Holy Spirit's power to transform my life. Make me new so I can be a part of the newness and the new creation that Jesus is making all around us. If you've prayed that prayer, if you want to spend time with somebody and talk through what that looks like, I would encourage you to come ask somebody, grab somebody, and talk about this and not let a moment go by before you give your life to Jesus and embrace the forgiveness that he has already offered. But for those of us who maybe are wrestling in the then, if we're wrestling between before and then, trying to look at the now, I just ask, Father God, that you would just open our eyes to those things we still need to let go of. That we would truly recognize and understand your love and your grace that you give to us each and every day. Just remind us of stories of transformation like Saul. Remind us of the stories of transformation that have taken place in the lives of those we know and love. And I just pray, Lord, that you would just continue to put those detours in front of us. Continue to give us those opportunities to accept your grace, accept your forgiveness, repent, and continue to get closer to you, Lord, because we all desire to be closer to you. I just pray, Lord, that you would just guide and direct us as your people, as your church, as we leave this place. It's in the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. Thank you. You are dismissed. For those of you who are a part of the baptism class, you're going to be in the cry room right through that door. For the rest of you, you're dismissed. Have a great week. Love your neighbors.